This podcast is brought to you by jewishpodcasts.org. Start your very own podcast today at jewishpodcasts.org. You're listening to the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT podcast. I'm your host and curator, Rabbi Aprom Kivalevich, and I hope you enjoy this episode. Welcome to Beichsaurus, thinking about food scientifically. I'm here with Efraim Schachter, a product development food scientist. Uh, Efraim, before we get started, I think I should probably uh, tell our listeners, what is food science? I mean, it sounds great, but what exactly is food science? What is a food scientist? I think that's a good idea. Yes, it is. Uh, I'm reading from a webpage from UC Davis in Davis, California. And I think you told me that they have a pretty good food science program there. They are. Uh, they do, rather. <laughs> yeah. I attended food science program at Cornell University and UC Davis is, is one of our competitor programs. Yes. Let's talk about what, how they describe food science. And, uh, we went over this before and I, and you can tell me if you agree or disagree with it. Um, food science is a convenient name used to describe the application of scientific principles to create and maintain a wholesome food supply. Just as society has evolved over time, our food system has also evolved over centuries, into a global system of immense size and complexity. The commitment of food science and technology professionals to advancing the science of food, ensuring a safe and abundant food supply, and contributing to healthier people everywhere is integral to that evolution. Food scientists and technologists are versatile, interdisciplinary, and collaborative practitioners in a profession at the crossroads of scientific and technological developments. As the food system has drastically changed from one centered around family food production on individual farms and food preservation to the modern system of today, most people are not connected to their food, nor are they familiar with agricultural production and food manufacturing designed for better food safety and quality. Now, this is a quote, Ephraim, uh, from the book, Feeding the World Today and Tomorrow, The Importance of Food Science and Technology. Then the UC page says, food science has given us frozen foods, canned foods, microwave meals, milk which keeps, snacks, nutritious new foods, more easily prepared traditional foods, above all variety in our diets. The food scientists help supply this bounty by learning to apply a wide range of scientific knowledge to maintain a high-quality, abundant food supply. Food science allows us to make the best use of our food resources and minimize waste. Most food materials are of biological origin. How they behave in harvesting, processing, distribution, storage, and preparation is a complex problem. Full awareness of all important aspects of the problem requires broad-based training. To be a food scientist and help handle the world's food supply to maximum advantage, you need some familiarity with chemistry, microbiology, biochemistry, engineering, statistics. With this special training in the applied food science, webpage goes on to say that there are many exciting and productive careers with a lot of employment opportunities. I, I would just want to clarify when it says that food scientists contribute towards nutritious food, a food scientist is not a nutritionist. And nutritionists have the goal of telling people how to eat in ways that will make them healthier. Well, food scientists try to create foods that people want. Food scientists generally work for as people would say, big food. 
and need to understand the science behind the chemical components of food and how they interact with one another to be able to help produce food on a large scale. Food scientists today have the convenience of living in a time where consumers are more highly educated and consumers actually want healthy food. So food scientists today can create food that is healthy, whereas food scientists of 1950s decided to to create like uh, TV dinners, which although they worked and they were able to be sent to supermarket freezers and could hold for a long time, were obviously unhealthy and contributed probably to some of the health issues and obesity issues uh, that plagued the, uh, the latter part of the 20th century. Absolutely. It was, it was the Wonder Bread era. Um, and that's, and you know, food scientists didn't go from bad to good. Food scientists haven't changed, but the consumer has changed and what the consumer wants has. And accordingly, the food scientist role has changed. So I think basically what you're saying is that food scientists, in order for them to actually have the shkolim that they need in order to subsist in the world, need to work for companies and companies, of course, are consumer-based or capitalist and are trying to give the consumers something they think they'll want or what the demand is for. So therefore, food science has changed. And I guess the zeitgeist of the general population has shifted in a way that now there's more money in being more nutritious conscious and more healthy conscious. Yeah. And, you know, when it comes to food safety, even, you know, there are food scientists who do help create the rules. But for the most part, food scientists are helping companies create products that will not violate food safety rules. And so it's also convenient that by not violating food safety rules, you're making food that's safe for the consumer. Yeah. Well, as, as someone who also works a little bit in the food industry, uh, as everyone knows, I'm a mashkiach for Abel's and Hyman, that wonderful company. And I can give them a plug all the time. I am aware, of course, of the, the strictures that the USDA and other government agencies put on companies. So, uh, clearly that as you say, makes you the handmaiden to uh, the nutritionists and the health-oriented people because the government rules demand that type of, of healthy product, and therefore you're a part of that. Look, everything is always complex, and we're going to actually take that complex definition and try to narrow it in our program to things that we think are bichsvars, things that we think that the Jewish world might be intensely interested in but i would i I'd hope our conversations of prime as they go on won't be necessarily limited to specifically okay uh, only a, a halachist would be interested in but i do think you have to start from a shared frame of reference uh one of the things that i was struck by in that uc davis description was the fact that things have changed and the need for food scientists arose especially with the industrial revolution that moved people away from the land. Uh, you've learned the Talmud. I, this is my bread and butter. Sorry for the mixed metaphor here. But in the Talmud, as I learned Seder's Royam, and you learn uh, even in the Talmud Bavli, which doesn't have a Seder's Royam Gemara only in Prochus, you can see throughout Talmud Bavli and Yerushalmi the knowledge that every 
average rabbi and definitely common farmer had with how the earth works and what grows, what doesn't grow, what seeds, what plants. And it's astounding, really, our ignorance when we see pages and pages of information and ideas that 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 we really don't know about because of what uh, the Industrial Revolution has wrought, the the fact that we, we have been uprooted mostly from the soil. So a lot of your basic understanding, which makes you a scientist, was probably shared by a lot of the common people who were farmers in the past. They might not have been able to to explain it in the in the fancy way you can but they understood what grains work what wasn't what 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 they will have a problem with growing and what they won't part of this is really recovering our past right that's a very interesting point and you know it makes me think that in some ways the existence of food scientists perpetuates a society where people don't need to be connected to the land because you guys are doing it for them. Exactly. You're doing the thinking for them. Right. right. And, you know, food scientists allow mass production to be possible. And so otherwise everything would be spoiled and kill you basically. So having food scientists and, you know, in the U S the exposure of all of the cleanliness issues that were happening in the meat industry, you know, that was a big push after that to start focusing on food safety which um was uh you know one could argue right, you're talking you're talking about the you know, the, the the stockyards it, which was really something which is over almost over 100 years old already um of yeah. course upton sinclair wrote the the famous novel the jungle about based what on was that. yeah based on and that really caused a public sensation for cleaning up the type of uh, illnesses that were prevalent. I guess the better way to say it is that we were sort of like a gangly teenager that didn't understand what it meant to grow up. Yeah, we had these big cities and we were able to ship everything to Chicago, but we didn't realize what it meant to have all those animals together and the type of illnesses that it would perpetuate, the type of what crowded living would do. All the things like we were ready to to reap the bounties of of a great society, but we didn't realize the dangers that were involved. And that's part of, unfortunately, you know, what these exposés revealed, and that caused the type of the strictures and the types of rules and regulations that the government stepping in uh, to guide people when they're not able to recognize themselves the dangers involved. One of the things that that we talked off pod about, and I thought it was very interesting because it was the way we met was that you came to my house for a, a yunt of meal. And Thank you again for having me. Yes, yes. Well, look, my doors are always open, especially to food scientists. I always, uh, <laughs> yeah, we have a big little shingle that says food scientists are welcome here. We got, we have room at the end for any FSs. But anyway, the point is, is that when, when my wife served, uh, her sterling cabbage soup, we wanted to uh, put the croutons in. And of course, you know, my wife is uh, gluten-free. We could talk about that in a different program, what gluten-free means and the whole uh, issues of gluten-free. But she's very excited that the Pesach croutons from the various companies, the kosher companies, Osam, Liebers, whatever it was, are gluten-free. And, oh, we bring the croutons to the table. But as soon as we open them, it was like, well, who let the dog out? I mean, the dog that was out in, in, in the in the rain and smelly or like, what is that smell? This, these little croutons, they're, they're rancid. What happened? 
and you were able to explain what the problem was, right? There was no ambiguity there. Anyone at that table who opened that container of croutons would have immediately been able to smell, this is not food. This should not be eaten because we're, we're programmed that way. And what I was able to, to discuss, um, at the, at the table was that those croutons essentially are, are, are starch and oil. There's uh, little to no water in them. And so when you have something like that exposed to air, which contains oxygen for a prolonged period of time, something happens, a chemical reaction known as oxidative rancidity. And co in common speech, people will say, this is stale. And, you know, it's, it's a little bit of, sometimes people will use the term stale to just mean dry, say stale bread, but dry bread and stale bread are absolutely not the same thing. When something goes stale, that means the oils in it are rancid. And so, so even though this package was, you know, in a, in a plastic container with a little piece of, uh, uh, plastic paper over it, its shelf life had already ended, right? Yeah. Oftentimes with packages like that, they will, they'll do something where they actually flush out the air in the package and fill it with a different gas, uh, like a nitrogen, for example. Um, in, the reason why they do that is because this way, until you open it, there'll be, there will be no exposure to oxygen. But even if you just open that package once and immediately close it, now there's oxygen in there and oxidative rancidity is taking place. So when, when did it go bad? It went bad because it's, it's probably from last Pesach. Is that probably what it is? In this specific case, I mean, I'll, I'll ask you, was that package bad immediately when it was opened for the first time? I can't remember, but I think so. I think well, it if was. that's the case, then they probably did not flush the gases out of it before sealing it. But even if there was a little bit of oxygen left in there, other than the presence of an abundant amount of oxygen, there are other factors that can help speed up oxidative rancidity, such as exposure to sunlight, exposure to heat. All of those things can speed up that process. So... It was either very old or stored improperly. Mm -hmm. So, which many times I think specialty items are, especially in a small store, uh, like many of the kosher stores are, their, their storage is really, you know, sort of like a, uh, you know, a Jerry, you know, Jerry rig type of place where, oh, we keep this here and we take this out, uh, Pesach time. And it could be because of that. It was just exposed in a way that, that, that caused it to go stale. What's interesting though, of course, you know, we mentioned bread. This had no bread and it was just potato or tapioca starch. But again, because of the oils that were in there, you have the, uh, the oxidation, the rancidity. But we, as we were talking about it, you know, as we moved out of Pesach and of course, as we all have moved out of Pesach, you know, everybody, you know, in the old days would be zero again. Okay. Now we're going to get our bread. We're going to get our bread out. And we, we mentioned about bread that we might have sold for Pesach that we kept in the freezer. And you mentioned there that bread in the freezer is not a great idea. Yeah. Bread in the freezer is not a great idea. And it's something that I think a lot of people know because they've experienced it, but it's not something that people talk about. Everyone's had the experience of, you know, don't, no one had time to buy challah for Shabbos. No one had time to bake challah for Shabbos. But you dig out from the back of your freezer these two loaves of challah that were thrown into a Ziploc bag, um, a year ago and you warm it up and it, 
it ends up tasting pretty bad. And that is because it's it's stale. It went rancid. And that's something that bread is very, very prone to. Even though you sealed it and put it into the freezer of Priam right after Shabbos. And, and, and I mentioned to you, I, I think this is really a, a problem consistently today. I think since the Jim Fix diet or the anti-carb diet, Chalas have become sort of a, an item that, you know, especially, you know, I, I sort of want to call this episode, um, you know, lo al alechem yichyeh. You know, right? People aren't living on bread anymore. Um, you know, right. the Pusik says, lo alechem levado yichyeh adam. You need other stuff. I think what's, what's happened in the last, I guess, 25, 35 years is there's been a complete shift because of worries about weight gain. Um, and, and I think part of it has to do with the longevity of people living longer and trying to cut out carbs from their diets as they get older. That what used to be standard is, oh, here's the bread for today. Here's our daily bread. I think I mentioned to you off pod that even in Shulchan Ark, of course, it always talked about how you're going to get your hundred brochas because you're definitely going to be washing on bread and you're going to be eating and you're going to be benching afterwards. Right. That was considered standard and normal up until, you know, you know, not that long ago. And now we end up. Well, we still have to make challah. We still have to have our ritual uh, loaves and say hamotzi and make our sudot. But we end up with people who don't scarf down the challah because they don't want to add extra inches to their waistline, who are, you know, worried about those carbs. And these beautiful challahs end up really sitting there and, and many of them just wasting afterwards. And therefore, you know, the balabosta says, let's wrap them up put it in the Ziploc bag, as you say, and maybe put an aluminum foil over that and put it in the freezer. So I think this is something that happens a lot. Why doesn't the Ziploc bag and the, and the aluminum foil help? So the Ziploc bag and the aluminum foil would help. And generally speaking, to be clear, when you freeze things, the best thing to do is totally push out all the air from what it's in. So don't just wrap something in aluminum foil and put it in the freezer. But put it in a, a a bag, could be Ziploc, could be another brand, and push out as much air as possible. Even better than that would be getting yourself a vacuum sealer and vacuum sealing whatever you're going to freeze. The issue with bread is that you can't push out all the air without turning your loaf of bread into a pancake. Mm. The nature of baking bread is you let it rise. And then when you bake it, a lot of that water evaporates. First of all, before you bake it, there's already a lot of air in it. But the water evaporates, making room for even more air. And you have this matrix of air and starch and, you know, generally speaking, some oil and salt. And if you freeze that, you... Even if you push out all the air without flattening that loaf into a pancake, pushing all the air out of the inside of the bread, there's all of that oxygen there ready for oxidative rancidity, ready to make it go rancid. And when you freeze things, there's a few mechanisms that, particularly in a freezer, result in staling. They all pretty much come down to moisture migration and oxidative rancidity. So in a standard freezer, things freeze pretty slowly. We're not talking about an industrial freezer where you know, things are individually 
flash frozen, dropped into liquid nitrogen. That's a very different process. In your standard home freezer, it's a slow freeze. When you have a slow freeze, you get very large ice crystals that form. When very large ice crystals form, those ice crystals break through the cell walls. And in the case of bread, the gluten structures, the the hydrated starch breaks through that all. And when that defrosts slightly, it makes it easy for that moisture to evaporate out of the product. Freezers are very dry places. The reason why they're dry places is because cold air can't hold a lot of moisture. And so when your freezer heats up and cools down, as freezers in your home generally do in order to prevent ice from building up on the walls, you get larger and larger ice crystals and you get that water in your product evaporating out. That keeps happening and and you get something called freezer burn. You'll notice when you look at, at, at something, you can see the freezer burn and that area that's freezer burnt is much, is dried. It's much, it's much more dry than the rest of the product. And it'll also tend to taste stale. It'll tend to taste rancid because without water there, you have even more contact between the oxygen and that fat. So really, when you can see where the freezer burn is, I mean, you can't salvage any of that loaf anymore. The whole thing is basically has been infected by by the rancidity. Yes, but it should not be treated the same as a toxic type of mold or a, a bad uh, pathogenic bacteria. You know, it's not it's not good for you, but it's not going, you're not going to get sick from it in the same way that you might from something like that. One of the things that I think, you know, you talk about the person who forgot to buy chal and takes the frozen chal out, but you also have people that stock up on um, sliced bread and they make sandwiches with it. And, you know, they, they buy these huge loaves that, you know, you can get very cheap and they stick it in the freezer and they take it out of the freezer and they put it straight into the toaster. So even though that the bread has been sitting there for a, a while, does the toaster help eliminate the issues of rancidity and freezer burn? The, the way that it can help is that when you have that moisture migration out of, away from the starch, so the the starch kind of crystallizes and it's not the same hydrated starch that it was before. It's a very different texture. That's that freezer burn texture. But when you toast it, there is some ability for it to take up that water again. Now, it's not going to get rid of any rancidity flavor that's happened. But a lot of times when people toast things, they end up burning it slightly. And that can mask some of that, some of that oxidative rancidity taste. They also cover the bread and things. And no, I mean, that, that flavor that results from staling, from oxidative rancidity that takes place from freezer burn cannot be removed. Uh, but it's not as it's not, people shouldn't think they're ingesting something that will cause them to retch or to get ill from. No, a, it, it won't make you ill. I mean, the, Logically, there is reason to believe that the uh, consuming a lot of, you know, rancid oil uh, over a long period of time would be bad for you because there are, you know, free radicals in there, 
it's oxidized. It's like, I would say it's the opposite of eating an antioxidant. <laughs> right. In other words, it, it doesn't cause the blood that would be flowing through our bodies naturally. This would be like a buildup of some plaque, plaquish like buildup in your system that isn't just going to exit your body easily. It's sort of going to stay within your system in a negative way. I would more look at it less from a cardiovascular way and more from a, a carcinogenic way. It would be, you know, that would be something that would potentially be considered to be cancer causing. Mm-hmm. And so you shouldn't eat too much of that for that reason. But frankly, the main like people reason- People were talking about plastic bottles. Like people for years were worried about, uh, you know, food that was stored in plastic bottles that if they were there for too long, that there might be some of the chemicals in the plastic making their way in- uh, to the food. And this is what they were, you were talking about, like a carcinogen. So this is, although it's a natural carcinogen, it's a carcinogen nonetheless. I got a, a Shiloh this year. One of my Talmidim texted me before Yontif that they had frozen the Shmura matzah from last year. Now, again, why Shmura matzah is so expensive to the tune of like 36, $40 a pound is, is, is the subject perhaps of an, another program. Why it should be that way? Uh, yes. talking about matzah production, but. He asked me, can I use, he says, I, I took last year's shmur matzah and I wrapped it up and I put it in the freezer. Can I use it for this year? And I told him that there's no problem. He doesn't have to worry about becoming chametz. Um, that matzah will not become chametz. The issues that let, let's, let's say that from a prime shafter's perspective, bread in the freezer, chal in the freezer. Uh, I think you once told me three weeks maximum. That should be, if you are, if you do need to store it for a while, because there's no room on your shelf, you don't want it to start getting moldy, three weeks in the freezer, but use it within three weeks. That is a good rule of thumb. Um, you know, technically speaking, just a quick note on that. Technically speaking, bread starts going stale the second it comes out of the oven. And putting it in the freezer speeds up that process. What it, However, it speeds it up, but it slows down a lot of other processes like molding and um, mm. different bacterial growth, which is much more important. E- even at three weeks, you might be—I mean, you might be able to notice it. There's going to be some ice crystals on it, but there might be a little bit of staling. But does is matzah the same problem or not? So matzah—that's an interesting question because it's definitely not the same problem. First of all, it's not full of air, so sure. you're not going to have—you're not going to have those issues. Hala is is uh, definitely. Lechem Ashira, you know, it's the reason why it's so special is, you know, bread doesn't usually have egg in it. Um, bread doesn't usually have oil in it. The oil that's naturally in bread comes from the wheat itself. But um, a lot of challah recipes have have some oil in it. So challah is really a... a how is the an, number one problem? How is the number one problem in the freezer? <laughs> right. So really, you know, matzah... If you, you know, you, you don't necessarily have to be a vacuum packed, uh, you know, in the hazmat suit to put it into your freezer. You could probably, probably store your matzah, your shmura matzah, uh, from last year and it probably will be okay next year. It probably would be okay. But something to note is that shmura matzah, because of how expensive the shmura matzah flour is, even white shmura matzah is not, this is not really white flour. It's, a partially whole wheat flour. And what makes whole wheat whole wheat, the um, the wheat germ and the wheat bran, are the parts of the wheat berry that have the oil in it. 
So whole wheat flour goes rancid much faster than white flour does. And shmura matzah of any kind is at least partially whole wheat. So there is that risk. But honestly, I think the main risk when it comes to freezing matzah for a year is that at the end of that year, that matzah may taste like your freezer. So you're saying that it might have some aspects of hummus in it? You think it might it might absorb some of the other bread items that are around it? Did I pask it incorrectly? I told him he could have it. I don't know about I don't know about the hummus, but things that are dry like that in a fridge or in a freezer, when exposed to the air of the fridge or the freezer, tend to take in a taste that's sort of this amalgamation of everything uh, that's wow. in there. Uh, so there, that's interesting. So in other words, it might have the tom of, 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 of the pizza or whatever it was that was next to, which really leads to me to my next question. Frozen pizza. I mean, you know, before pizza shops became prevalent, uh, in every Jewish hamlet, uh, you could only get it in New York, right? Uh, I remember I learned in Aries Row in Baltimore in the, in the early seventies and mid seventies and, it was like the biggest simcha when someone would go to New York and bring back pizza because the only pizza you could get was Shopsies or some frozen pizza. Frozen pizza has been a staple for, uh, I, I assume since, you know, the, you know, Italian Americans, uh, really made their mark in the United States. It became a food of choice for so many. And when the Jewish consumer really discovered pizza, I guess in the, uh, in the late sixties and seventies, frozen pizza became a, de- a, a demand and something that, you know, the Jewish market was able to furnish. Now frozen pizza, I've never seen it say on the box, don't keep this for longer than three weeks in the freezer. Frozen pizza stays there for, for months and months. Do you think there should be a problem with that? No, frozen pizza has a few, a few differences, um, that are, that are worth discussing. So first of all, the frozen pizza that you buy at the store is not the same thing as if you were to go to kosher pizza places that many of us have the luxury of living near and buy a pie and take those and put it in your freezer at home. Because frozen pizza is like I briefly mentioned before, frozen at a much colder temperature and much more quickly than than your freezers at home. So the ice crystals that form in that pizza are going to be much smaller. The benefit to small ice crystals is that you're not going to have as much moisture migration and so you're not going to have as much staling. There are two ways that I've seen frozen pizzas being done. So there's the frozen pizza where they bake the pizza and then they flash freeze it. And there's the frozen pizza where they just take the raw dough, they put the sauce on it and they put the cheese on it and they flash freeze that. The latter of those two is going to be able to resist staling and oxidative rancidity for even longer because there's less air in the product itself because mm. it hasn't been baked yet. So that moisture that's in there is taking the place of what will be air after it's baked. So even though the consumer probably likes the former because, oh, I just put this in the microwave or in the in the in the oven for a couple of minutes and it's ready, chances are, if especially if it stayed for a couple of weeks that there is already some oxidation rancidity there. Whereas the second one needs more work by the consumer because they sort of have to basically bake it, right? Which, right. which hasn't been yet, but you're going to get a better product. You are. It's sort of similar to the Kinneret Chalas that, that at one time were really the rage. I don't see them so, so, so often anymore, but those were sort of unbaked, like, you know, these, like, you know, fist shaped, 
pieces that that were braided and then you bake them but it's sort of like you don't have to do any of the the difficult work beforehand you just right. take this baby and you put it into your oven and and it bakes for the first time those those seem to be free of the issues that you were talking about and for the most part they are it is very similar to that especially because those kinar and challahs are not only unbaked they're also unrisen once you defrost it you have to let it rise so even if they were to let it rise and then freeze it that way it would have air in it um, this way, they don't let it rise. Now, the way that they package it, I mean, I think they could do a better job. They put it in plastic bags. I think if they vacuum sealed it, it would be, it would keep even longer. But to make one more point on the, on the pizza example, there's one other factor that differentiates frozen pizza from bread. And that's actually the sauce. So when you freeze pizza, no matter how you freeze it, whether it's frozen at home or whether it's flash frozen in a factory, the moisture is going to migrate outside, out of the dough, out of the crust, which would call, cause staling. But at the same time, what you end up having is moisture actually will migrate from the sauce into the dough and take the place of that moisture that's migrating out, which will slow down that process of staling because the longer it takes for that to dry out, the longer it will be at least somewhat resistant to that. Mm. Uh, rapid rancidity so that that gob of tomato sauce or whatever it is that you see on these pizzas uh is really a protector it really is a very uh and it might be the salient difference between that and the poor chalice that we we're talking about in, in the beginning you know one of the things you know i i have to tell you you know it's going to date me and I, I always like dating myself because you know nobody else will but the point is is that i remember when i was in yeshiva and after Shabbos, the cook would would send out the crew to gather the pieces of challah that were left from the various meals, the industrial type meals that we had in yeshiva. And we knew that that week we'd probably be getting something like called a challah kugel. We knew there would be like the bread was going to be used. It was going to, they didn't freeze it. Uh, they made use of it. I think that we don't, you know, the palates have developed to a point where you know, there's been a explosion of wealth since that time. And, and I think, you know, when we talk about the waste, I, I think this is something going back to the UFC's mission statement. There is an incredible amount of waste that is, that is occurring. And, and I think, you know, if, if I would, do I feel this is the main social issue of today? I, I, I know that, that especially in a time of diminishing funds and inflation, the amount that we're spending on these chalas and the, the what we're getting from them in return seems to be a, a, a problem. Clearly, you know, we could probably get the shear of a kezayas to everyone to makayim their mitzvah of Suda Shabbos with smaller chalas, and we wouldn't have this 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 really incredible waste issue of the money spent in the beginning and the amount that gets thrown out. You know, I, I see even at weddings. There are there are many institutions that try to salvage the leftover food and repackage it at various soup kitchens and types of restaurants for people who are of limited means, but they can almost do nothing with the breads. You know, the the, the chicken, the meat, the potatoes, those those can be, you know, shunted in a way and repackaged and, and, and salvaged. You know, I, I do think, you know, the 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 bread, the era that really that spawned humanity you know which was basically 
when I say humanity, I don't mean all human beings, but going away from, you know, the hunter gatherer to the farmer, the symbol of that, of course, was bread making, which was done in, in, in Mitzrayim. The hieroglyphics testified to that. And we know, you know, from the Midrashim that it's considered almost the pinnacle of, of human achievement. It gets the highest bracha, the king bracha. I think that era is sort of like faded away. You made a very good point to me off pod the other day when you mentioned that you were wondering maybe, you know, the word lechem which is we say hamotzi lechem isn't really the term for the bread product. You speculated to me based on your knowledge of what that word lacham means in Arabic, like in, in the Arabic culture. Why don't you tell everybody what 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 you discovered? Yeah, so the word um, lachem in Arabic is the word for meat, and so I spec. Actually, my father speculated, and you know he this is something he likes to talk about. He's uh, somewhat of a Semitic linguist. And he speaks about how perhaps the word lechem is used and was used in Semitic cultures to mean the primary food. And the Jews tended to favor historically, during certain uh, periods of history, agriculture, while the Arabs tend to favor hunting. And so meat ended up being sort of the staple in uh, in Arabic and bread ended up being the staple in Hebrew and they used the same word. So, Right, so lechem, really, so when we say hamotzi lechem min aretz, it's actually, according to the way your father is interpreting it, hey, you know this thing that's called lechem? You know, our lechem comes from the ground because that's right. you, but 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 really lechem can be other things. We do find, by the way, just to to give your father's point a little more, I guess, starch, <laughs> a little more calories to it, is, you know, by the Maraglim, of course, the Maraglim um, uh, gave their report to the Bnei Yisrael, scaring them and saying, there's no way we could win this war. And of course, Kolev and Yeshua say, <laughs> they say, no, they are our lechem, meaning, you know, uh, right. obviously they're not pieces of bread, but the point it's is, no, this, we could take care of this. This is just our typical meal. Um, right. so, so lechem, you, you can see, you know, e- even the word, you know, my third grade Rebbe once told me that, um, the word milchama, the word for war means it comes from milacham, meaning it comes from trying to battle over who gets that staple, right? In other words, mm-hmm. you know, so it, it comes from lechem. The desire to expand, the desire to be able to have that core nutritious value that are the biological imperative of being a human is. So, milchama is milachma. Again, it's probably, you know, again, it's to be lochem. You know, it's clearly yeah. there's something going on here. And I, I, is this, you know, is this the end of, you know, obviously halacha isn't going to change, but clearly society has changed and society that I, I think that ship is sailed. We're not going back. The, to the days of okay, you know, you know everybody's going to be having their their peanut butter jelly sandwiches three times a day, and I, I don't think that's and I'm sure you're seeing that even in the the food science industry that you're part of. Yeah, and you know, Rabbi, I think this is a pretty momentous moment because I think right here on this podcast we have just begun the challah roll revolution, 
<laughs> I think the solution is clear. I think chalas just need to be smaller <laughs> because it really is just not something that keeps well. And if you have to keep your chala, if you if you want to, you don't want to waste. If if you made too much, if you have to have a big chala because it looks it looks nice, and you're not going to finish it, then I'd say either make French toast the next day, make a bread pudding if you're into that. Or buy a $30 food dehydrator and start making your own breadcrumbs instead of paying for the overpriced ones at the grocery store. And, and you can put those breadcrumbs, of course, on schnitzel, on, fish, right. make your own uh, mozzarella sticks, anything. Yeah, right. And those, of course, with the sauce will last a lot longer in your freezer. Well, Ephraim, I think we, you know, for a pilot episode, I think we flew maybe not over the clouds, but definitely in a way that uh, people have a whole new perspective. And Hopefully in weeks to come, we'll deal with the complete the gastro diet of of all of us. We'll talk about fish and sushi and many other things. So uh, tell us, people listening to this, please, you know how to get a hold of us. You can always uh, email us at rovkiv at gmail.com. And of course, leave comments for us and tell us what you thought of the program. Brian, thanks a lot. Um, you know, it, it was illuminating indeed. And thank you for uh, having me. Happy to be here. Yes. And I'll tell you what it's really done perfectly is that I have no desire to have a midnight snack tonight. No <laughs> desire to go out there. I am, I'm completely satiated. Be well, everybody. Take care. Thanks for joining us for another episode from the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT podcast. Be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast app so you don't miss a single episode. 